This is the late John Kennedy welcoming you to the Walter Paisley Movie House podcast. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Walter Paisley Movie House, where we strive to be the best kind of terrible influence. That's right, I'm doing a new motto, you guys. Coming to you from Nilbog Manor Studios, our music is by Jonathan Harmon, and I am your host, Dylan Rory. We are brought to you in part by our partner sponsor, Scarlet Lane Brewing. With five locations in the Indianapolis area, there are plenty of opportunities to try the official beer of horror. Most cop fil- yeah, let's start over. Most cult films failed theatrically, but were later discovered and gained underground popularity, popularity via home media. However, there are some movies that have gained cult status after being box office smashes. The Marx Brothers movie fall into that latter category, and today's guest is a revered expert not only of their movies, but of a cadre of other pop culture topics. At the tender age of 19, he was asked to work as Groucho Marx's assistant and principal archivist after he successfully worked to get Animal Crackers re-released in theaters by Universal Pictures. His book, Raised Eyebrows, My Years Inside Groucho's House, has been lauded as a point of view reflection on Groucho's final years. Since that time, he has worked as a voice actor, writer, and producer on documentaries and television shows, including Inside the Marx Brothers, Inside, Inside John Lennon, and Shemp Cocktail, a toast to the original Stooge. As a writer, he has provided material for Dick Cavett, written episodes of Murder, She Wrote, Sliders, Simon and Simon, and the new WKRP in Cincinnati. His most recent book, Salamis and Swastikas, Letters Home from a G.I. Jew, is a collection of letters his father sent while deployed during World War II. I'm pretty sure that war is due for a reboot. Isn't it in pre-production right now? I think it might be. His voice <laughs> oh, work... <Ukraine. laughs> Yeah. His, his voice work has been featured in animated movies and television specials such as Toto, Lost in the City, Frosty Returns, and It's the Girl in the Red Truck, Charlie Brown, and we gotta discuss that one. <laughs> while, working, while working for Groucho, he was able to meet some of the greatest legends of old Hollywood, including Mae West, S.J. Perlman, Zeppo Marx, Gummo Marx, George Burns, and Bob Hope. He is also a gifted mimic doing spot-on spot imitations of Nat Perrin, George Burns, John Carradine, Burgess Meredith, John McIver, Dick Cavett, Rondo Hatton, you guys. He does a Rondo Hatton. You're Grouch. my friend. <laughs> and I want you to hurt the girl. <laughs> I was in the House of Horrors with Martin Kozlet, and I was the Huxton Creeper. <laughs> and I did meet Gail Sondergaard. Yes. We're going to get to that in a second. And my flare pen smelled like her cheap perfume for weeks, if not months afterwards. Because uh, you didn't wash them, right? Huh? Because you didn't wash them, right? My pen? <laughs> oh, I thought you said your pants. No. My I was going to ask how it got my there. Flare pen. No, no. I thought no. you said your flared pants because they were in at the time. Yeah. Oh, no, God. I never wore those. No, I had her sign a picture. And, uh, oh, lovely. And the pen smelled like her perfume. For Lovely. Anyway. Anyway. Go ahead. Go ahead uh, and tell me oh, about you could also You could also do Groucho Marx and many others. Not only that, he, is an, he has his own informed take on the Danny Thomas story. <laughs> I promise <laughs> I won't make you get into it. Uh, currently, he is co-executive producing Raised Eyebrows as a feature film after being in pre-production hell for years. 
It's going to star Jeffrey Rush as the sardonic mustachioed legend, Sienna Miller as Aaron Fleming, aka Flimmo, and directed by Oren Moverman. Please welcome the man who once dated the same girl as Zeppo Marx, but got further with it than Zeppo did, <laughs> Steve Stolyer. Wow, that was probably the greatest introduction I've ever had. I think it would all be downhill after that. So I'm going to say it's been a pleasure and we'll talk again. <laughs> well, as I stole this format directly from Frank Santapadre and Gilbert Gottfried, let's say yeah. theirs was better than mine. Well, <laughs> boy, I miss Gilbert. Don't you? He was, uh, that show was just incredible. And he was just a great guy. If you if you saw the documentary Gilbert, yes, saw that he was, you know, quiet and shy and unassuming and a great family man, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, not at all like the, the screeching image <laughs> that people had. I knew Sam Kinison to a degree mm -hmm. as well, and likewise was quiet and nice and brilliant and well-read and nothing at all like the image that people have of him. So yeah. It's the sort of behind-the-screen uh, doctrine of not judging someone by the character they play. Yes. Uh, you, on the, on that podcast with Gilbert, uh, I believe you're on there a couple of times. and uh, This many. that Three times, okay. Uh, and you guys, your interplay together was just delightful. Um, your your Burgess Meredith to his Lon Chaney Jr. Was just we, we had no idea what we were in for. You know, he had me on because he was a big Groucho fan. Mm -hmm. but they didn't know if I was going to just tell a few interesting stories and then that was it. He didn't know that I like to think I'm fairly quick on my feet or on others' feet. And, uh, and also the voices... And plus trivia about old movies and old horror movies and all that, that I'm not just the guy who worked for Groucho. Yeah. So we really sparked. And it was, I told my sister that I want the podcast played at my funeral. And it's <laughs> irony. Because it really was that, that first, that first uh, Gilbert podcast was just so much fun. I just was turning purple and sweating. <laughs> Luckily, it was audio. <laughs> I listened to it again a couple times in preparing for this, uh, and it, it really is. You can feel the spontaneity of it, and you guys are having a lot of fun. Yeah. So um, let, do you mind if we go back a little bit and talk about your youth in St. In Louis? Uh, no. Okay. So uh, growing up there, I know you had said that you kind of – grew i don't want to say an obsession but definitely an intense curiosity about celebrity due to some encounters you had with captain kangaroo and mm. the three stooges red skelton andy griffith right um prior to that though were you like going to movie theaters as a kid uh going to movie yeah to see things first run like tom thumb i'll mm -hmm. tell you uh you have the distinction of speaking with someone whose mother had to carry him crying and freaking out out of the shaggy dog, the Disney movie with Tommy Kirk. But I'll tell you why, and you will instantly understand. I had seen Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein on yep. television. So when 
she took me to see the shaggy dog every time tommy kirk started to grow dog fur i flashed on cheney jr turning into the wolf man <laughs> and it was like I get through the first one and then I calm down and I'm okay. And then he turns into the dog again. And she finally just had to take me out because it was too traumatic, all because <laughs> of Cheney Jr.'s wolf man. And it, I didn't see the shaggy dog in its entirety until about two years ago. And I handled it fine. I didn't need any drinks or uh, sedation or anything like that. Don't that, you know what will happen when the moon goes full? I, I, I don't want to live forever. I, I turn into a wolf. I can get that. I uh, I was I spent my time on the floor covering myself in jujubes during the uh, Wizard of Oz when the witch appeared in sure. the the big crystal ball. There's lots yeah. of scary stuff in alleged children's movies. Yeah. Yes, Disney. <laughs> you know, Bambi get, mother getting killed and. There's All a, those grim fairy tales with, you know, kids. Yes. We're going to cook you in the oven and might push you in. And geez. There's, anyway. a, there's a tremendous website called Kinder Trauma. And it's it's just that people write in with those pop culture moments that absolutely destroyed them as kids. And I'll, uh, uh, <clears throat> I'll grind your bones to make my bread. Mm hmm. The giant and the beanstalk. I mean, what is that? I'll grind your bones to make my so the bones become like flour. Sure. And, and he cooks those at the and you know, and when I was about six, which would have been about when I was seeing uh the Shaggy Dog and or Evan Costello meet Frankenstein, mm -hmm. I remember having a dream where a witch had turned my family into strips of bacon and I was forced to eat my uncle Sidney. That sounds like something out of yes. a Woody Allen uh, monologue. And I was forced to eat my uncle Sidney, but it, in fact, but it was a terrifying dream. And, you know, when you think about Hansel and Gretel and you think about all of it, and, and I saw Tom Thumb where, where the, the guy wastes one of his wishes on wanting his nose to turn into a sausage. Yes. And it's like all that stuff got put into my cranium at an impressionable age. And, uh, and I am the creature you see before you. <laughs> so yeah, I saw movies in theaters, drive-ins uh, mm -hmm. with the family. And I would usually fall asleep. I remember we saw Ben-Hur. Oh, wow. Um, and, and then I'll always watch movies on TV. And so I got an, an early introduction to like Charlie Chaplin and mm -hmm. old time movies, and then developed a real early fascination with the universal monster films. And I, I ended up getting, I remember getting the Frankenstein Aurora model. Oh yeah. In St. Louis, we, we moved in 62. So whenever that came out, I got wow. that. And then once we were in Los Angeles, I set to work bit by bit getting each of the plastic models. And uh, I wish I had hung on to them, but they were great fun. So I was a massive fan of classic horror. Yeah, the Universal Monsters, I, I think they still hold up today. And there's just, 
especially, and it comes up a lot on this podcast, uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, Fred Olin Ray like named that as his go-to movie. When he's feeling down, he'll pop that on and it always it makes works him as happy. a comedy. It works as a horror film. It really does. It's so much fun. <laughs> and and brains. <laughs> Wilbur. Wilbur. It's no it's no Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla, but it's close. So <laughs> So I wonder how, if Eddie Deason is going to star in the Sammy Petrillo story. I, you know, I had him on here recently, and <laughs> we were actually I was going to bring him up anyway. He he brought up taking a trip to New York as when he was around seventeen, and breaking off from his family to go watch Animal Crackers in the theater. Ah. And he said he saw it several times there. Uh, we actually mentioned you during that, um, and your work to get that out there for him. But yeah, he would be the perfect Sammy Petrillo. <laughs> That's... I'm sure they're clamoring. The same way children stop me on the sidewalk to ask to hear my Burgess Meredith. Absolutely, sure. Can't well, we'll have a little fun. I just watched the uh, Twilight Zone marathon over the oh. 4th of July. I have all the DVDs uncut, but there is something about the marathon. And of course, there's the wonderful, why, Helen, why have you done this to all my wonderful books? Oh, there's Dickens and Shelley and Shakespeare, all the books and all the time in the world. It's not fair. Anyway. I mean, I that is dead on. Thank you. Um. So how old were you when you guys moved to L.A.? I was rapidly approaching eight. Okay. But I still have vivid memories of my childhood in St. Louis. Um, I miss uh, lightning bugs. I lived yeah. in New York in the early 80s when I was writing for Dick Cavett. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was happy to see that there were lightning bugs there because that reminded me. And, you know, as a kid, I loved the snow because I didn't have to shovel it or drive it. Right. <laughs> All I had to do was play in it and build snowmen and make snow angels. Yeah. So I have fond memories of that. The St. Louis Art Museum. So what took your family to L.A.? My father's job. He was working at uh, as a like junior executive at a chemical corporation in, in st louis and they were opening an la branch and the boss asked dad if he would like to be the head of that and he said sure and uh i don't remember anyone being asked sort of like you know leon ames and and meet me in st louis <laughs> and it was much more traumatic for my sisters because they're older than me sure. and they had to say goodbye to all their classmates, the pe people that they've been friends with all their lives. And uh, and I was traumatized because we couldn't move our cat, Smokey, because we were moving into an apartment that didn't allow pets. So that was rough for me. Sure. Um, but I didn't have deep roots. I didn't, you know, I had friends, but I hadn't gotten past first grade. So. Right. Um, that transplanted us to the San Fernando Valley and that's where I did most of my growing up alleging that, that I have grown up in period <laughs> assuming 
So what was that experience like, first off, getting used to not only a new world of people that you have to know, new kids that you have to make friends with, but also climate-wise, it's so much different. And and you're adjusting to all these things at once. I'm sure that was complete culture miss, shock. I miss the snow in the winter and the and the lightning bugs in the summer. Um I don't know. I wasn't that climate conscious. I didn't have to worry about looking my best. And, you know, um, so I think it was pretty comfortable. And it didn't, I don't remember it taking me long to get into the rhythm of the place. Mm -hmm. Once we, we were in, we were only in the apartment for a year and then we got a house in Tarzana. And so I had the same friends. Mm -hmm. uh, as a matter of fact, last summer, was the a uh, fifty year high school reunion, which was populated by all of these elderly people. I don't <laughs> know where they busted in from. People with white hair or no hair, and women with facelifts, and guys <laughs> unreal teeth, and it's like, oh god. But what was really cool was there was a certain chunk that went back to my elementary school. So it wasn't oh, wow. like a high school reunion. There were people that that went way back with me. Uh, so it was cool to to run into them again after all these decades. Yeah. It, but, it is strange, those connections, those deep-rooted connections going way back, how when you, even decades away, you kind of fall right into a rhythm. And I do have friends that go way I mean, one of my best friends, Gary goes back to sixth grade with me, wow. and we remained in continuous touch. Um, my sister Patty has friends that go back at least to high school, mm -hmm. and people are astonished by that. They say, "Boy, I'm not, I don't even know where any of the people I went to college with are." And you wow, know people from public school, but yeah, I've got I've got a friend from third grade that we've never lost contact with each yeah, other. It can be done. <laughs> So you're now in good old sunny California and you're in your formative years. At what point did you, let's say, discover the Marx Brothers? Well, I think in earnest, it was high school, but I had caught glimpses of them in movies before then. And uh, my parents would quote lines from the films, like vaccinated with a phonograph. <laughs> uh, also in St. Louis, I had an Uncle Joe, my mother's brother, who was balding and had a mustache, glasses, and smoked a cigar and wiggled his eyebrows and had a good sense of humor. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of a foreshadowing. It's like, hey, this guy's like my Uncle Joe. <laughs> um but I think it was probably high school when I really thought, where have these guys been hiding all my life? And I set out to watch or find as many of their movies as I could, which in these, I don't have to tell you this because you're not 11, but you know, several generations have grown up where if you want to see a movie, you can take something out of your pocket and tap, 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 and you're watching it. Right. Um, when I was growing up, there was no TCM. There was no uh, 
Blu-ray DVD that was not VHS cassettes of movies. Mm -hmm. And I would just look through TV Guide and see what was coming up that week and circle it and make a bunch. And then I could cross off horse feathers or days or races or whatever. Um, And that's the way my friends and all, all my friends were old movie buffs, either old musicals or comedies or horror movies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we'd compare notes and, or go over to someone's house and watch the movie with them for the communal experience. And we just accepted the commercials. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Part of the fun, I guess. So, but now we're of course spoiled by remastered, uncut, pristine. Yeah. At the, at really at the press of a button. Yes. And it is, I, it comes up so often on here that, that idea of, is it good or bad? And, and I'm, I, I miss the chase. I miss that hunt. I going out. I feel that way about old books. Yeah. Yes. If I'd go to a city I hadn't been to before, I would want to find out where's the used bookstore. Mm-hmm. And it's like, ooh, this is cool. And it would be this this treasure hunt, going finding uh, copies of books by Thurber and Benchley and Charles Adams. I didn't have. And now I go to Bookfinder.com, and it's like. Do I want it with or without the dust jacket? How much right. does this guy have? Oh, his is in very good condition. It's seven fifty. Yeah, I'll spring for that. I don't have to get the. And then it's delivered a few days later. Yeah. Um, so the hunt and discovery and appreciation of I found this and brought it home with me. You, you know, yeah. Now we can watch whatever movies we mentioned. Yeah. Uh, pretty easily. The the phrase I use for media consumption now is disposable because i can now very quickly see something and get the gist of it and go all right i i understand this now i don't need to watch the whole thing or or just watch clips or scenes um in in the case of finding a book online it could be oh you know what it'll be there later i'll come back and do it and you never get it um whereas if i'm in a bookstore I, i remember finding a first edition of um breakfast of champions by vonnegut and that, I mean, it was like a light was shining on it when I found it and I grabbed it and immediately bought it. If I found it online, I might waffle a little bit and lose out. There's that. Yeah. And and like you, I think my film education came from Sunday afternoon television where um, there were no sports going on. So they'd run old Bowery Boys or old Marx Brothers or W.C. Fields. And I just sit and watch those and take them in. Um and we had chill we had chiller which yeah. the actual horror films and then mm-hmm. strange tales of science fiction which went more for the outer space chiller science. was a that was a saturday night one wasn't it for you guys well, saturday night there was creature features with seymour that's what i'm thinking of okay uh but strange tales of science fiction uh those were both weekend afternoon that and chiller they didn't okay. I know they were on different times because they never clashed. It was never having to decide between the day the earth stood still and Frankenstein meets the world. <laughs> no one should ever have to make that kind no, of Sophie's choice. That's, that is absolutely. <laughs> so as you're in high school, um, and uh, given the era too, I've, I've often thought about this with, as you came up and we're getting animal crackers out there, it's coinciding with a lot of social change and the Marx brothers being this, this 
just agents of chaos. Yeah. But also very progressive, not only on film, but also just in their lives and how they viewed the world. I was, did it feel like maybe the perfect storm to be able to bring them back in that era? Well, they, uh, the anarchism and anti-establishment, uh, standing up to authority, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff was really appealing to us baby boomers during this, you know, anti-war and don't trust anyone over 30 and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, so there was a renaissance of interest in the Marx Brothers and W.C. Fields and Mae West. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, because they all fell into that, they don't take guff from anyone and they say the things we wish we could say, but we'd get in trouble. Mm-hmm. And I remember one of the first film classes I had at UCLA, uh, the teacher said, everybody thinks that the biggest comedy stars of the early thirties were the Marx brothers fields and Mae West, but it's not true. It was Eddie Cantor, Joey Brown and Will Rogers from a box office standpoint Mm -hmm. who have perhaps a dozen fans now, probably even fewer of them (laughs) have their marbles intact. Um, but yeah, we, all, we we figured, oh, well, since they were hot all over again, I'll bet they they were just the, the cream of the crop back then. And it wasn't the case. I mean, yeah. they weren't obscure. They were famous right. and did well. But the in terms of box office, the kings were Will Rogers, Joey Brown, and Eddie Cantor. Yeah, and I'm like, the Marx's last Paramount film was a flop, and it's Probably yeah, at most soup. people's favorites now is right. duck soup. Yeah. Best. Yeah. So yeah, the time was right. I mean, that, that didn't have anything to do with my interest in trying to see animal crackers. It was mm-hmm. because it was the missing link. Great lost heard about it. Can't see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they only made 13 movies. They, they yeah. weren't like Laurel and Hardy or the three stooges making features and, uh, short films for decades mm-hmm. it's like this is all you get they were in vaudeville then they were big broadway stars and then for just this small chunk of time they only made about a dozen movies and then mm-hmm. went their separate ways so and and i'm such a stickler there's really only half of them that i really really like because i you know yeah. once went over to mgm they that was their death knell I, you know, I, I realized the other day that almost as a rule, the more the title of the movie has to do with the movie, the less funny it is. That's the a good point. Movies were Monkey Business, Horse Feathers, and Duck Soup, yes. which have nothing to do with any of those. But if you see The Big Store mm-hmm. or At The Circus, Go west. West. <laughs> it's truth and advertising, but you want crazy doesn't make sense. Yeah. I think I think that started too in Night at the Opera, which was their first MGM film, where it 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 was exactly that. Its producers were no, it has to make sense. Right. You know, why why well, would Harpo Albert said I-, I could make a picture with you guys that has half the laughs and will make twice as much money. And for better or for worse, he was right. Because yeah. opera and races were their biggest money makers. Mm-hmm. But the purists like me 
see it as the watering down. It's Absolutely. Like, I don't want to see Groucho get kicked downstairs. I don't want to see Walter Wolf King whipping Harpo and berating him. Right. Um, and do we really care about Kitty Carlisle ending no. up with the right guy? Um, and then as Joe Adamson pointed out in his wonderful book, Groucho, Harpo, Chico, and sometimes Zeppo, mm -hmm. Uh, in the Paramount films, Harpo could just pull a blowtorch out of his pocket. Right. In the MGM films, he had to find it sitting on a shelf somewhere. Right. He has to make. Well, so the more down to earth they were, the less interesting they were, even though there are wonderful moments of varying degree in, in all of their movies. You could put together montages from all of the films and people would say, I don't understand why people don't think this one's as funny as the other. Well, it's because I'm only showing you a minute right. of a hundred minute movie. Lydia, the tattooed lady is a brilliant moment in a yes. really, really bad film. Right. It's just that. <laughs> and Irving Brecker was so proud of saying, I wrote two all by myself, two marks. And it's like, yes, their best work was collaborative where you had people, playing off each other or saying, right. I don't know if that line is strong enough. How about this one? Instead mm -hmm. of just shooting what you have in your typewriter. But Right. <laughs> and they would ad lib a lot. There's that um, apocryphal story and it gets, a, it gets applied to everyone. I heard it as Kaufman, uh, as they were rehearsing on stage, Kaufman was crossing the stage and stopped and said, I'm sorry. I thought I just heard one of my lines. Right. You know, that, that they would famously go off book. Well, yeah, on on stage, mm -hmm. uh, but which is it, where they workshopped a lot of those movies too. Well, the first two films, Coconuts and Animal Crackers, were film adaptations of the stage plays, mm -hmm. and then starting with then the Paramount films after that weren't workshopped anywhere, and okay. those, of course, are their funniest off the wall. Yeah. And then at MGM, Thalbert said, let's try some of the scenes out on the road and keep the best stuff in, and then we'll know how much time to leave for the last. Yeah, they put in those weird pauses for laughter. Well, it works in a theater full of like-minded fans. Mm -hmm. um, but it seems like dead air now, because Thalbert said, people are laughing over Groucho's lines. They're missing a third of the jokes because the laugh It's like, oh, that's terrible. This movie's too funny. I don't want to see a movie that makes me laugh too much. I want my 15 cents worth. So, yeah. So they mm -hmm. tested some of them on the road, but in, including Go West. Uh, but it still didn't guarantee that it's a yeah. good movie. And those later films, you can you can feel them really not wanting to be there. Um, though at the Chico... Chico needed the money, as Gilbert liked to yeah, always yeah. say. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, in those those movies, it really does start to show. So when you were working toward getting Animal Crackers released, what was your initial impetus to even think to do that? There was a bootleg print of it playing at an old movie theater in Orange County near Disneyland. So mm -hmm. a group of my friends piled into a car and and this was in the midst of a gas crisis in 1973 mm -hmm. where people were really watching, you know, there were lines to get gasoline. And, right. 
Um, but we felt it was worth it to finally see Animal Cracker. And it was a horrible print, just a dupe of a dupe of a dupe. Yeah. And just the, even in the scenes that were during the daytime, they were blurry. But <laughs> we were actually seeing Animal Crackers. We were hearing Hooray for Captain Spaulding and hearing mm -hmm. these famous lines and all that. And in my admirable ignorance, I thought, I wonder if Groucho knows this is playing uh, and he hasn't seen it in decades either. And I knew from looking through the, the phone book, the Beverly Hills phone book, that Groucho wasn't listed. But also from browsing through the same book, I knew that Harry Ruby was, and that he was okay. one of Groucho's closest, oldest friends, composer and screenwriter who worked on some of their greatest films. And so I don't know how I got the guts, but I just phoned Harry Ruby and he didn't answer a nurse answered and if she hadn't answered and it had been him none of what happened after would have taken place because she had to write down my name and phone number for him to call me back she said he's taking a nap he's fine mm -hmm. you know he wasn't in any imminent danger and then he called, and at the time, it was galvanizing, realizing I'm one degree of separation from Groucho. This is like I knew from reading the Groucho letters and watching his name roll by on old movies. Oh, my God, this is really him. And he said, well, I'll, I'll be sure and tell Grouch uh, about Animal Crackers. And I thought, oh, my God, he is going to tell Groucho. Oh, my God. And then Christmas Day of 74, my phone the house phone and Tarzana rang and it was Aaron Fleming. And I knew who she was because I had by then become such an obsessive Groucho fan. I knew she was this secretary girlfriend that was, had appeared with him in his one man show in Carnegie hall and was on the cover of Esquire a couple of years earlier. And, and wasn't she also in a great film called Hercules in New York? Oh, Hercules, Hercules. <laughs> and yes, with Arnold Strong. Arnold Strong and Arnold Stang. Yes, one of the strong, <laughs> Arnold Strong, because obviously no one named Arnold Schwarzenegger could make it in movies. So, and he was dubbed in. So you've got Arnold Schwarzenegger poorly acting and his mouth would move and you would hear, no, Athena, you mustn't do this. <laughs> It will anger the mighty Zeus. Yeah, it's pretty awful. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but our listeners, right. they we love that movie in this in this house. So, but so Aaron Aaron calls you uh, because she got the message from Harry Ruby, and she was in an accusatory mood. She didn't find it fascinating and wonderful. She said, "How are they able to play that?" It's illegal for them to be showing that. How did they get permission to show that? What? And it was like, I'm sorry. All I did was go see it. I, I was not aiding and abetting <laughs> the old town movie theater in Anaheim. Um, and then we started talking and she said, Groucho has been trying for years to get Universal to re-release that film. And they just won't. And, and uh, I've gone to Sid Sheinberg at Universal and pleaded, and Groucho was trying. 
And then she wanted to, she basically wanted to take me to Universal, to the executive offices as like this kid here and his friends drove all the way to Orange County to see this movie. Don't you think it's worth bringing it out? Um, I suppose I should backtrack a little bit and say that the film had been made at Paramount in 1930. Mm -hmm. And then in the late 40s, when Universal, MCA Universal, bought the old Paramount films, it was included in the package. But because of essentially a clerical error, uh, the copyright had expired and the rights right. had reverted back to the writers of the play and the composers of the songs. Mm -hmm. And so even though Universal, quote, owned it, they couldn't include it in their package of... Right. T when when they package things for TV, so you would see horse feathers and duck soup and monkey business, and you would not see animal crackers. Um, there'd be that big triangular shield, and it would say a uh, MCA TV release. And it used to bug me that it didn't say an MCA TV. Uh, MCA. Uh, so she wanted to bring me there to prove there was a, and then. She had to leave, but promised that we would talk again about this, which, and, and uh, again, you know, the one-two punch of talking to Harry Ruby and then this woman who was the guardian of the Golden Fleece mm -hmm. himself. And then in, the t in between further phone calls, uh, my friends and I hit on the idea of a petition drive to show that more than just a handful of people wanted to see it, that there really were lots and lots of mostly younger people that also wanted to see this, quote, lost Marx Brothers film. So uh, when summer vacation ended, uh, I'm sorry, when Christmas vacation ended, that was back when it was okay to call it Christmas vacation. <laughs> it wasn't winter vacation. Um, uh, when it ended and I went back to the dorm at UCLA, I started a committee on Bruin Walk, which was like where all the students have to file past going to and fro. And there would be tables with petitions and literature and there was like gay rights and the war, Hare Krishna's legalized marijuana, and then get animal crackers <laughs> off the shelf. And people were so suspicious. It's like, do you have to be a registered voter? Is the government going to get a, you know, because this was back with, with Watergate and, yep. and uh, you know, recording, surreptitious recording and being investigated and all. And it's like, no, it's just, we just want to show that. And um, Aaron arranged for Groucho to come to UCLA. I did. I had a couple of brief chats with him on the phone before meeting him, and that was. I was talking to her one one night, and I said, uh, "So how is Groucho?" And she said, "Well, here, hello." I said, "Groucho, yes." How are you doing? How am I doing what? <laughs> How are you doing uh, whatever you're doing? I'm telephoning. What are you doing? 
I said, I'm telephoning too. It certainly is a small world. <laughs> and he said, yes, it is. I'll let you speak with my secretary, Miss Fleming. It's like, oh my God, there was no preparation for this. I was just thrust to converse with this man who was my idol. And then at UCLA, I said, Groucho, I am very happy to be meeting you after all these years. And he said, well, you should be. <laughs> and Aaron said, this is Steve Stolyer. He's the one trying to get Animal Crackers re-released. And Groucho said, well, so did you get it? And I said, not uh, not yet, but we're working on it. And he said, well, you better or I'll fire you. And I said, I, I didn't realize I was working for you. How much are you paying me? And he said, a little less than nothing. <laughs> and uh, and we were off and running. And, and I mean, there was a crowd of reporters and students hanging on his every word and interviewers, you know, what is the purpose of your appearance here today, Mr. Marks? I expect to get a lunch. <laughs> no, but besides that, I may get dinner. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what do you think of the adulation the younger generation has for the Marx brothers? And Groucho said, well, I'm flattered by all the attention. Last Halloween, three kids came to my door. One of them dressed as Hoppo and Chico and Groucho. And I said, what did you give them? And he said, I sent for the police. <laughs> so it was, I mean, I had to keep like pinching myself. Is this really happening? So Universal relented and they paid the money to unscramble the legal quagmire. And they decided they would bring it out in a theater in L.A. and a theater in New York. And then that was it. And they don't want to hear about it. And please leave, stop pestering them and. And so I went to the re-premiere at the UA Westwood. I rented a tuxedo. It was a great gratifying moment for me. Um, and it ended up breaking the box office record at that theater that had been set by the French Connection a few years earlier. Right. And very gratifying for weeks after that to see long lines of kids in t-shirts and blue jeans and kids waiting to hand over their 350 or whatever it was to see this movie that I and then in New York Groucho went to New York for the premiere re-premiere there and, and it was another madhouse and apparently there were policemen on horseback and uh, it was like touch and go to get him safely into the <laughs> theater because he was by that time fairly frail and in his mm -hmm. so, and uh, so it after the movie came out, it was like, I don't want this to end. But what is, why would I stay in touch with them? But oh, I, it's like I got this taste of this magic nectar and then it was snatched away from me. I had two or three summer jobs fall through in 74, for which I remain eternally grateful now. Because <laughs> my dad was saying, I don't want you sitting on your fanny the whole summer. Go out, uh, go down. There's the Taco Bell had a sign in the window, and maybe they need uh, the bus. And I thought, I don't want to do that. And I thought, well, I have nothing to lose. So I called Aaron and I said, Is there anything at all that you think maybe I could? might be and she says well actually i used to be grouch secretary but 
he's gotten to be so popular. I'm much more of a manager now, and we need someone to handle all of the fan mail that's been pouring in. That's part one with Steve Stolyer. What a dream job. We're going to get into more of his time working with Groucho and enduring Aaron Fleming in the next episode. Get out in the world. See the world. Do fun things. Go have a drink. But take care of your servers because this is the Walter Baisley Movie House and we do not piss on hospitality. See you soon.